Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution and increasingly in the service of finding our way through to a flourishing future that we will be proud to leave to the generations that follow us. And part of that flourishing future is how do we live? How do we eat? And my guest this week has looked very deeply into this. Rob Percival is a campaigner and food policy expert. His commentary on food and farming has featured in the National Press of the UK, on primetime television, and his writing has been shortlisted for The Guardian's International Development Journalism Prize and the Thomas Reuters Foundation's Food Sustainability Media Award. He works as Head of Food Policy for the Soil Association, which is the UK's charity that looks at more ethical and sustainable ways of creating food and promoting farming. And his book, The Meat Paradox, is an absolute wonder of journalism and scholarship and thought and shamanic exploration. It goes into so many of the avenues that Accidental Gods exists to explore. And I was completely delighted to be able to invite him onto the podcast. So, people of the podcast, please do welcome Rob Percival. So, Rob, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. And you have just moved from London to Falmouth. How is it down there in the beautiful southwest of England? Uh, it's beautiful down here, yeah. The, the sun is shining. Yay. Probably yay, but our sun is shining and we are desperate for rain. I'm guessing you're not in the part that's growing and so not quite so desperate for rain. Anyway, you're next to sea. You have an infinite supply of water. You can just get the salt out of it. Exactly. Indeed. So you wrote The Meat Paradox, as far as I can tell, during lockdown. Mm-hmm. And I'd really like to explore the content. It's one of the most fluent and deeply thought books around this very complex and challenging ethical problem that I've ever met. So first question, did you come across the meat paradox as a concept and then decide to write the book? Or did you start writing the book and then discover the title and the concept as you were going along? Well, I um, I think it was the former. I in, in my day job, I work for the, the Soil Association, an organization that uh, campaigns for regenerative and organic food and farming. And in that capacity, uh, as, as the organization's head of food policy, I've been very embroiled in this really heated and divisive meat debate that's been going on for a number of years now. Um, this this question, should we eat meat, um, uh, seems to get people very animated, um, whether they're coming at it from a, a, a vegan perspective or as a, a farmer. Um, the, the debate is played out across social media um, and, and in the press. And I became interested not only in um, why that question seemed to be so complicated, but why there was such a potent emotional charge attached to it. Why did people get so het up about the meat question? And I began to explore the, the psychology of meat consumption. And that led me to this, this body of research that's been conducted under the banner of the meat paradox um, just in the past decade, ma- mainly published in the journals of social psychology. Um, and it was from there that I went on this much broader journey into the uh, the culture and history and, and evolution of our relationship with meat. Beautiful and brilliant, which is the bulk of the book. The, the 
idea that we could learn from current indigenous peoples and from what we have left from our ancestors and from there look at the history of how we have come to be a modern society that has dissociated itself so completely with the intimate nature of life and death mm. that eating meat inherently is. And the book is divided into sections that, that look at our past and our current indigenous peoples, but also the neuropsychology of eating meat and the tribalism of it. So I'd really like to explore the heated nature of the debate and where the psychology of that comes from, because I recently read the IPES report, The Politics of Protein, and was really struck quite early on by a quote that they put in, in a block in the middle, which is, if they can get you asking the wrong questions, then they don't have to worry about the answers. And that sank in quite deep and seemed to me to hit the core of quite a lot of our culture wars at the moment, which is if a certain section of those who profit from maintaining business as usual can get all of us to claw each other's eyes out with a viciousness heretofore unknown about topics that don't actually address the overall systemic crisis, then the system will not change. And that the viciousness of the to eat or not eat meat debate is part and parcel of all of that. And I wondered what you found, if you could explain to us what you found about how and why it is such a polarizing thing and the strategies that we use to convince ourselves that our side is right. Mm. So this, um, yeah, that's a really great quote. Um, this word, the, well, this phrase, meat paradox, broadly alludes to the, the fact that we uh, instinctively empathize with animals, we care about animals, but we still cause them harm. Uh, in, in the context of food production, uh, uh, harm on a huge scale. Um, and there's this um, split between our values and our behavior often. You know, most of us say that we care for animal welfare. It's very important to us, um, especially in the UK. And yet most of the, the meat that we consume has come from low welfare, intensive, industrial um, animal farming systems, um, primarily poultry in this country. In the past few years, we've seen um, this, this shift towards flexitarian eating, vegetarian, vegan diets. One in three of us now say that we're eating less meat, citing concerns for um, animal welfare or the environment. But actually, if you look at uh, consumption data, sales data, that figure isn't really reflected there. We're, we're not actually eating significantly less meat. So there's there's something going on beneath the surface um, where our, our identity is becoming increasingly uh, pulled in two different directions. Um, and the body of research that I explore in the book suggests that this is fundamentally rooted in our in our empathy. We do care about animals on a really fundamental level, um, but we're we've become very adept, especially in our society, at averting our our gaze from the the harm that's caused to them. Um, even in high welfare farming systems, you know, we, we, we're killing animals. That, that means causing them harm. And we don't like the psychological and emotional consequences of that to, to weigh too heavily upon us. So we've devised a whole suite um, of sort of cognitive and cultural mechanisms to keep those complicated feelings at, at bay. We, we dissociate the meat on the, our plate from an animal. We don't really think about the animal when we eat it. We, um, we, we've become very polarized in our thinking we say this is natural this is normal this is this is right um, without really 
teasing out what we mean by those words. Um, and on the level of uh, our society, um, we've we've told ourselves a story about farm animals, um, farmed animals, and their their relative importance, their relative uh, capacity for intelligence and sentience, which really puts them in a sort of box that says these guys aren't so important. You know, we care much more about wild animals than farmed animals. Um, and all that has been ticking along, you know, for a number of decades. Um, but the the rise of the vegan movement in the last few years has really punctured that that set of defense mechanisms. There are now people walking amongst us who are voluntarily foregoing animal consumption, showing that it is a choice, um, just in, in in the way they live their lives. And 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 this um, this has caused a, a, a kickback. We 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 like to um, we don't like that message to be to be. Um, to be dwelled upon. Um, we don't like to be prompted to think about the choices of our actions. And in the context of the world of social media and, and so on, this debate has rapidly become highly polarized, um, where it's very difficult to, to inhabit that middle ground now and say, well, actually, there's there's something to be said for the, the case for and against meat consumption on both sides here. So yeah, there's lots to unpick and all that, but but uh, we we have seen this this splitting in the past decade, this this real dichotomy emerging between those who think that it's right and those who think that it's wrong. And the backlash against those who think that it's right, it seems to me, it has a very similar flavour to the petrol heads who deny climate emergency and then go out and buy a bigger car and drive it around more just to prove that they're right. There's a kind of a, I'm going to do more. I'm going to eat more meat. Because there are people eating no meat and somehow by my eating more meat, I will prove that I'm right. And in the book, you explored a cult that I have to say I'd never heard of um, that followed someone who absolutely promised that on a specific date, a specific event was going to happen. And and when it didn't, tell us a little bit about the psychology of that and what it teaches us about this impact. So this this, uh, body of research which relates to the the psychology of meat, traces its way all the way back to a, a, a psychologist called Leon Festinger, who who was working in the in the in the fifties and who became aware of this cult that was coalescing around a Chicago housewife. Um, she'd been um, visited by aliens in her dreams by extraterrestrial beings. She was um, uh, engaging in sort of automatic writing and had this prophecy that the world was going to end on a particular day. Um, and so Leon and his colleagues um, did something that they wouldn't be allowed to do today for sort of professional ethics. They they infiltrated the group. Um, they they started taking detailed notes of of how this situation was unfolding, and 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 really they wanted to know how everyone would react when this date arrived, and and the apocalypse didn't come, the flood didn't come, um, and the the flying saucer that was going to come to take them away didn't didn't arrive. And and what they observed was really interesting it was those who had invested the most in this um in this cult those who had given up their family their jobs their homes to in, in anticipation they found extraordinary ways of rationalizing what had happened you know they said oh, actually it was our faith that meant that they didn't need to arrive to, to take us away we were spared because we all believed uh, and it was from this and a whole series of other um, observations about how these these folks responded that a uh, festinger um uh, develop this this notion of, of cognitive dissonance. We we like uh, or, or we need um, on on a re- really quite deep level for our beliefs and actions to cohere in a way that that makes sense to us. If we're living in such a way that our uh, beliefs don't don't cohere with our actions, then something has to give. We either change our the way we think or the way we act or our values, our behaviours. Um, but we're we're seeking this this underlying coherence. 
Uh, and and in the the context of the the modern meat debate, this is a really valuable insight because most of us think of ourselves as animal lovers. We care about animals. We 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 care about animal welfare. But it, it's patently obvious that we're often behaving in ways which cause significant harm. So how do we how do we deal with that that dissonance between our values and our behaviours? And those on the, the the vegan side of the fence have have um, sought a resolution that involves radically altering one's behavior, removing all animals from the diet. Whereas those of us on the um, more, more sort of omnivorous side of the fence uh, have indulged various of these sort of um, cognitive uh, evasive strategies to, to try and find reassurance that actually we are we are still behaving in a way that feels coherent and, and, and so on. Um, so yeah, it all comes back to flying saucers. Yeah. So let's unpick the cognitive behavioral strategies that meat eaters employ. Mm to make it okay. I was reading a paper just before we came on that referred back to a Japanese word that I can't pronounce, but basically the cutification. We we put pictures on our our milk or our meat of happy skippy cows in in beautiful or to us, you know, monoculture grass perfectly green and and lambs skipping around and and that that somehow and I still don't understand the psychology of that makes it okay then to eat the meat inside. And partly that's because we've utterly removed the awareness of of the living hell of the abattoir, I guess. So I want to look a little bit about the strategies that we employ, and then I want to look at your experiences of the reality of, of the parts that we tend to cut out. So what are the strategies that modern Western individuals employ to make it feel okay? I think there are um, four um, sort of broad categories that they fall under. And and the first one's really, really basic and, and actually happens, um, is, is found across cultures. We can perhaps come back to that, but it's simple process of categorization. You know, we eat some animals and not others. You know, some are, some are pets, some are food, some are not food. And, then, and there are really good reasons to think that this is just a basic way of channeling our, our empathy in, in, in certain directions. So we um, we are instinctively empathetic by nature. It's it's expressed inconsistently with each other and especially across the species boundary. But there's something there we have to channel and handle. So so we just divide them up. Uh, looking beyond that, there is really interesting uh, evidence around how our perception of the moral value of animals shifts in different situations. So when one of the the, the sort of founding studies related to the meat paradox, the the researchers gave two groups of uh, volunteers a set of questionnaires to fill out and among one of these questionnaires was one that which asked about the the moral value and and sentience of a cow because so they didn't know what they were doing these these two groups and one group was given uh, beef jerky to snack on while the other one was given cashew nuts the group that was snacking on beef jerky uh, rated the cow when they came to that particular questionnaire as being less sentient, less mindful, less deserving of moral concern. Uh, and they didn't know they were doing this. They, they, they hadn't consciously made that decision. They weren't uh, taking a, a, a rational uh, sort of a judgment in that in that moment. There, there was just this underlying dissonance caused by eating a cow while thinking about its its mind. And that prompted them to, to shift their, their perception in that moment. There are also um, sort of ways in which we manage to dissociate the meat on our plate from the animal that provided it. So we don't 
typically engage in, in the slaughter of animals. We're not, um, those of us who aren't farmers or working in the food industry are, are quite detached from that, that process. A lot of the food that we eat is, is highly, it's been highly processed. It's been chopped up and rearranged and there's no sort of heads or eyes looking at us. It's not true across all cultures, but that's true, true in our culture. Um, and, and the language that we use as well can also distance us. We talk about beef and, and, and so on um, instead of cow, pork instead of pig. Again, there are historical reasons that's the case, but the, the research suggests that all of this helps to mute our empathy, da dampen the degree to which we identify with the, the living, breathing individual who provided this meat. And layered on top of that is a, a sort of uh, web of willful ignorance and, and cultural evasion. So even those of us who, who profess to care deeply about animal welfare, um, the evidence suggests that we don't actually think about it very much when we're buying meat or when we're eating meat. We, we sort of uh, choose to turn that that um, engagement off and on. And we tell this this story in a, on a cultural level, societal level, around our relationship with farmed animals where there's some sort of contract you know they've, they've agreed to the terms of the deal they get a good life and a quick death implicit within that is the idea that they've sort of agreed to this setup and they benefit from it um and again there's lots to unpick there but this all weaves together all these different strategies and into a place where we go about our days um pretty unperturbed by um the fact that we're eating so many animals but if we were confronted with the um the, the crux of the matter in, in the slaughterhouse we would find it probably quite distressing quite disturbing so there's a, a and that's the the gap that the book sort of explores what it means to bridge thank you yes so in the book you very movingly describe your experience in an abattoir which i have to say i think was incredibly courageous in my veterinary past as part of my veterinary training I had to do two weeks in an abattoir and it very nearly finished me in terms of just walking away because it was it was horrible in ways that up until then, I suppose I was a teenager still. I qualified when I was 21, so this, I would still have been in my teens and I hadn't really got there. I got a bit suspicious when we had our meat inspection training and the guy in the not very clean white coat stood at the front of the class and tapped a carcass with his pointer and said, gross pathology. If you can't see it, it isn't there. I thought, I, I'm not, I'm not sure about that, really. So that was a, that was a first kind of, oh, and then there were all the apocryphal tales of the young enthusiastic vet who went out to the abattoir somewhere up in Western Scotland, because it's always in Western Scotland, um, and, and started actually looking and and finding all these things that shouldn't have been there and and pushing back and and the the abattoir's you know acceptance rate of carcasses drops by fifty percent and what do they do? Of course, they sack the new young vet and bring back the old one so that everything gets pushed through. So that was my first. And this isn't necessarily quite what I've been told. But then we had to go, and and what f I think really hit me hardest was the layerage that these animals were brought in and they were kept in concrete pens for 24 hours. And the smell of absolute abject terror has lived with me ever since. And the only other time that I ever got anything close was walking down a street in New York where they had these horses that took people for 
tr- tr- I don't know, uh, cart rides. I don't even know what they called them. And I, I smelled the same smell. And I remember just standing there going, oh, God, I am so sorry. And this one horse that had blinkers on turned right round and made eye contact with me. And, and I got the worst migraine I have ever had in that moment and basically collapsed on the street. And I think if anybody walked into it, I was vegetarian for the next 20 years. After that experience, I just, I can't do this anymore. I cannot be part of this. And everyone who's been in an abattoir says, if everybody who at meat had to go in an abattoir, it would stop overnight. And so tell us about your experience of that. Gosh, yeah. I mean, in some ways, I guess I was, um, I was fortunate. I, I wasn't in a big industrial facility, you know, the, some of the really intensive operations where they're just... Um, really focused on getting as many animals through as possible. Um, it was a smaller outfit, um, not too far from Bristol. Three men working the line, um, and they did sheep and, and cows and then pigs. Um, and, I, yeah, I spent the day there with a, a, a group of trainee vets. And and in some ways, it it's quite a sort of schizophrenic experience. Um, you sort of drift in and out of um, emotional engagement with it. There's that there are ways in which it becomes quite quickly just a sort of routine repetitious you sort of detach from it see what um they're doing you can admire the sort of technique of the men working and the the efficiency of the process or or perhaps that was just a sort of defensive mechanism i was sort of trying to cleave to that point of view because there was a sort of guttural response to to everything that was going on a a visceral um reaction the instant I describe in the book really relates to one cow in particular. So I was there all day. There were dozens and dozens of animals coming through, but it was only one animal in particular, one cow, wherein I had this this moment of real intimacy. I'd, I'd climbed up onto the the, the stun cage, and and she was standing at the door. She didn't want to come in. She she was clearly conscious that something was you know going on. I don't want to project too much, um, but. But she didn't want to go in. She didn't want to walk into this space because something wasn't right. And then she looked up and saw me at the far end. I was sort of dangling between the bars, and she she looked me in the eye, and I looked at her. And they're the sort of curious creatures, cows. You know, they're they're very curious. And it was and it was my gaze really that that led her in. And then the sort of stunned man bent down and did his thing. And anyway, the the long and the short of it was that in that sort of moment of joint gaze, it was completely clear to me in a sort of pre-rational, I didn't think this, it was just impressed upon me in such a way that this was a, a person I was dealing with. It was a cow person. It was a not the same as a human person. And the the full sort of ethical and uh, emotional weight of, of what then happened sort of bore down upon me. And and that's what really carried me into the, the investigation that followed. How, how do people handle this? Um, how do people across different cultures handle this? We've been eating animals for very good reason for a very long time. You know, that they've in various contexts in the past been completely essential to our diet. How, how have how have people managed this? Um, the, the potential for this to be quite so um, burdensome emotionally and, and ethically. So let's move to that with, with a small segue of you describe quite clearly in the book that potentially, and it seemed very plausibly, we are human because we made the move towards eating more meat and the meeting more meat enabled our brains to grow and therefore enabled us to eat more meat and there was a kind of a positive feedback loop that meant that Homo sapiens is Homo sapiens because in the beginning foraging on the saber-toothed kill carcasses and later learning to kill ourselves became 
integral to who we were. Yeah. We don't probably need to go into that in huge depth, but can you say a little bit about that? Well, I think that that is true. The accepted wisdom in paleoanthropology is that our our deep ancestors um, ate a sort of varied diet. They were eclectic and adaptable. It shifted from geography to geography, season to season. But there's evidence that that animal foods became increasingly important throughout that, fat and and meat and so on, and that there was this feedback loop that emerged that that then uh, led to more complex behaviours and so on. This narrative has been overstated um, in in some contexts to make out that we're sort of instinctively in the the depths of our nature, we're predators or carnivores or whatever, um, which isn't true. And and it's often this argument is wielded today as a sort of one-dimensional argument for why we should continue to eat meats, which is not the point I'm making. But I think it's true that um that, that there is this deep history of of um omnivory and that the animal foods have been tremendously important and, and have been necessary in various contexts in the past, in various societies, um uh, e- even today in and in, in some of the indigenous hunting societies I talk about, that's un- undoubtedly the case. So there's been this this underlying necessity that we've um, been having to to deal with. And at the same time, the the potential um for for the act of killing to be a cause of great moral anxiety to be really distressing um and and what i'm really interested in is how we handle that tension that that paradox in in our nature and and what are the sort of stories and rites and rituals that the different societies have have evolved to to help them make sense of it so let's have a look at some of the indigenous peoples that you explored who are still alive and therefore we can talk to them and you particularly highlighted the inuit the cree and i'm probably not going to say this right tucano in in the amazon mm-hmm. And it seemed to me that they had different micro-twists on what was broadly the same narrative, which is we are all people in the web of life. We are human people. They are seal people or monkey people or whatever it is, elk people. What interested me, okay, let's go back a bit of a step, because in my shamanic training, I worked for a while with somebody of Central American origin who took white people as apprentices. In the end, I chose not to be an apprentice, but one of the senior apprentices told me their story, which was after 12 years of training. So quite their their kind of final initiation was that they had to sit out in, as far as I can tell, suburban America, but suburban America is very different to suburban UK. Light a fire, sit with it for a week. So not sleeping. It, basically, we're we're talking about serious sleep deprivation where you can nap for long enough, but then you have to keep get up and keep the fart going. And at the end of that week, a deer would come and you had to kill the deer and and do something. I can't remember exactly what with the deer. And this person sat with their fire for a week and kept it going. And then the deer came and they had a rifle because this is suburban America and you can have a rifle in your back garden um, and, and shoot a deer and not be arrested. Um but they couldn't bring themselves to kill the deer, exactly as you described with the cow. Well, not exactly, but similar. There's a gaze to gaze. They're a white Western person. They may have done 12 years of training with a Central American shaman, but they cannot do it. And the deer hung around for the length of time it took for the moon to rise from the horizon to the top of the sky. So quite a long time. And then eventually kind of shrugged a deer shrug and walked off. And 10 minutes later, there's the scream of tires and the sound of an impact and a lot of shouting and the scream of tires going off. And, oh, goodness, that was a car hitting a deer. And this person goes with their rifle down the road and, and there is their deer not dead and they have to shoot it. And And so the lesson I took away from that was 
of the sacredness of the giveaway and the relationship and that there were there was a choice made and the the deer had come to offer itself as part of a sacred pact in a way very similar to the contract that you described earlier that I would like to unpick later on and that seemed to me to make sense in the context of other native stories that I'd heard particularly plains first peoples in America where uh, they would dream a particular buffalo and they would go out on their horse and the, the whole herd of buffalo, hundreds of thousands of buffalo, would, and they would ride along and they would see the one in their dream and they would shoot it and that would be it. Um, it's a bit more complex than that, but that was the concept. But what I came to in your book was a much different idea where there wasn't a pact, really. There was a lot of obfuscation of it wasn't really me that killed you and and please don't come back and hit me. I have to either poke your eyes out or blindfold you and, and pretend to be a crow so that you, the bear, don't know that actually I, the human, am the person who just killed you. And similarly with the Tucano in the Amazon, there was a lot of the shaman negotiating that for every animal we kill, you get a bit of a person. Um, so can you, I'm really interested in the distinction between those and whether all of the native peoples that you spoke to, the indigenous peoples, all had the obfuscation. And, and the example that I had was was therefore unique. Great question. And wow, what a story. Um, the first key point here is that in many of these societies, in order to locate, capture and, and kill your quarry, you have to empathize with them. That's in, and you don't have the the long range rifle or a night vision goggles. You, you have to to track them to find them. You have to engage with the elk as a or the reindeer as a thinking, feeling being. You have to get into their perspective, or you have to um, uh, inhabit their body to understand their tracks and so on. So, so in a very um, real sense, um, you're confronted. Uh, in quite a complicated way with the fact that you're engaging with a person that, who is in many ways similar to a human. So there's a moral dimension to this. Um, and, and just simply denying that the elk is intelligent or sentient, as we tend to do with farmed animals, isn't really an option. Um, so there's a, a, a dilemma there. And often, as you alluded to, there's a I mean, there's a huge variation in, in across societies, obviously, but there is a, a common underlying framework, which I think is perceptible. The idea that if you treat the animal right, um, uh, pay respects to the its guardian, the master of animals, this this figure which recurs across cultures, you know, you can take the flesh as food and the, the animal's soul will be reborn. And there's this cycling of, of souls throughout the biosphere. And humans are caught up in this in, in, in various ways. And, and in many societies, uh, not all, but in, in various societies, there, there is this sense that the animal is giving itself as, as a gift. But what also comes through, and, and this has been the, the focus of more, more recent anthropological research, is that there's a, a split between what the stories say is the sort of ideal relationship between humans and animals, and what actually happens when you pick up your spear and walk out into the forest. That it might be that the animal is, is um, understood to give itself as a gift, but there's still a chase, there's still a bloody kill, it's still violent. There's an underlying sense in which the animal perhaps did not want to be killed. And these sort of strategies of dissociation and deflection and, and, and so on automatically arise because there is a the potential for moral anxiety is is, is so great. 
Um, so I don't want to be projecting a sort of particular interpretation onto what these societies say, but this is the sense, um, this is the story that's that's coming through from various anthropologists who work on this. There is a recurring, a deep-rooted sense of moral anxiety, which is addressed in various ways, even when it's understood that the earth, uh, you know, cycles souls and that it's a gift and so on. There's still something to be dealt with there. And the Tucano were of particular interest. They'd hatched this really elaborate story, which which I got um, quite involved with in the book. So definitely, I would like to explore that more because all the way through all of the cultures was a sense of there being a threshold of enough that that up to a point it was okay to take meat, but taking excessive meat was going to have serious consequences. And the Tucano seemed to have that one, as you say, a narrative that really addressed that in a very succinct way. Tell us a little bit more about their story of what happens when we eat meat. So the Tucano are a, a group of 20 tribes living in the, the Colombian Amazon. And they tell this compelling narrative about the forces that animate the cosmos. They see the world as this great energy circuit, energy streaming from the sun and flowing through the biosphere, moving through plants and animals and from organism to organism. But it's essentially a, a closed loop circuit. The volume of energy is finite and, and humans have to manage it essentially in, in their ecological interactions by ensuring that a um, their environment is balanced and that their actions are, are coherent with the flourishing of the whole. And hunting is the most consequential act in in, in that sense, um, because you're redirecting part of this energy circuit from the animal domain into the human. And if you do, if you if you hunt an excessive number of animals, the world can become unbalanced and so on. That's the story. Um, and the it falls upon the 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 shaman um to play a lead role in, in helping manage this, both in a sort of mythic sense he goes off in trance to negotiate with this 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 being called by marseille the the master of animals but also he, that figure he or she will will take um quite specific ecological decisions regarding where the tribe should be hunting which animals they should be taking and so on and there's a real a really strong ethic that comes through around curtailing consumption to that which is necessary it's it's okay it's acceptable for humans uh, to to consume animals, it's still still very complicated. There's all sorts of uh, mythic and psychological issues to deal with around the kill, but um, but it's okay to do so as long as you limit your consumption to that which is necessary. And if you consume more animals th than you need, or if you mistreat them, then there are reparations to be paid. And in the Tucano's culture, those reparations come in the form of what they call a an exchange of souls, uh, this perfectly symmetrical sort of calculation of human lives and animal lives. For every animal kills, there's a human soul that must be given in return. And it's those who have consumed too much meat, more than they need, who are given over to be reborn in the body of their species. And this exercise is a really interesting uh, effect upon the culture as a whole and, and upon the behavior in relation to meat. It, it puts a real curb on consumption. You only eat an animal if you're confident that you that you need to. And the hunter only kills if they're confident that it is that it's right to do so, because otherwise they're going to be the one reborn. There are two things I want to look at first. And the first of those is that while in the Amazon, you undertook a journey with the plant medicine that I would know of as ayahuasca, but was called something that I probably can't pronounce by the Tucano. And I wondered, did you go and meet the master of animals? and Or did you, when you were with the plant spirit, experience something that helped 
your understanding or deepened your understanding in any way? So the the Tucano um, refer to ayahuasca as as yahe. The vine was um, as it was originally discovered, uh, as it were, by by Westerners was was in the Tucano's territory, and it plays a very important and an interesting role in in their relationship with um, with meat with the meat paradox. I explore how the yahe ceremony is the avenue through which the, the shaman goes off to negotiate with the the spirit of the forest and so on. And there's an important way in which the the shaman plays a uh, a sort of role uh, within the society, wherein he deliberately accentuates the anxiety that people feel about consuming meat through these, through through this sort of botanical tool to give it a very crude name. Um, he uses the, the sort of communal yahe sessions to reinforce people's belief in in this figure, the master of animals, to reinforce this notion of um, uh, reciprocal exchange of souls, to um, to really uh, conjure and entrench this this sense um, that that every action that the community takes in relation to the animal world is is tremendously important. So is of tremendous importance. So that there's a sense in which the they're using basically psychedelic therapy to remind people so that's a horrible way of putting it it's inappropriate but uh, of reminding people that their relationship with animals is really important um and and that um it needs to be carefully managed and and i'm not of that society so i i i have only a, an outsider's perception of of what's going on based on their testimony and and the work that anthropologists have have done but in in my experience drinking yahe um which i recount late in the book there's a sense i think in which I, I don't I don't try and explain quite what happened at that stage. Um, the, later in, I don't want to give away the ending of the book, but there's I think what what Yahi is really useful for um, is um, stripping away some of the uh, sort of preconceptions and, and and ideas that you have on a on a sort of um, personal or, or cultural basis around who you are and, and what's going on in the world. Um, and I, I certainly didn't just enter the Tucano's universe and, and see the world through their eyes when when I drank it. But um, and as far as the book is con- concerned with uh, unraveling this this sort of web of um, deception and, and dishonesty that we've wrapped ourselves in in relation to animals, it perhaps played a role in, in, in helping me peel some of those layers away. Okay, thank you. And similarly, late on in the book, but not towards the end, you explore your experience of going to visit the caves in southwest France where you go a long, 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 long way in. And there are then these extraordinary paintings. And one of the things that really hit me in ways that I'd never understood before is that these were made over 30,000 years. These are an art form that lasted a thousand generations if we if we consider a generation to be 30 years, which I think is quite a long way of considering a generation. 30,000 years of human activity building these extraordinary, living, vibrant pictures, which are almost exclusively of animals that we hunt. And there are none, as you say, there are none of dwellings. They're not showing us what the places were that they lived in. There were none of plants. There were none of people wearing different sorts of clothing. There's animals and occasional people. And these are all deep, deep in caves where just to get there would have been an act of initiation, I think, when you're you're either crawling in the dark or following someone who's got something that could go out at any moment. And when you get there, as you tell us, and please tell us more, there's a possibility of creating states of mind that are very similar to the states that you would reach with ayahuasca or psilocybin or other plant medicines. 
Tell us a little bit about your experience of that and what you learned from it. So I became interested um, initially in just how how deep this this meat paradox reached. So uh, it seems obvious that our society is very conflicted about eating animals. When you look across different societies, different contemporary societies, as, as we've just alluded to, hunting societies, there's a, a level of complexity, anxiety, um, which they're grappling with as well. When did this first begin? If we if we look back into human history, our, our evolutionary past, we've been consuming animals for at least two million years. At what point did that become complicated? And there's no easy way of answering that question. Emotions leave no direct trace in the archaeological record, but we can search for the earliest evidence of sort of ritual behaviour that seems clearly uh, preoccupied with with animals. And and that earliest evidence does emerge around uh, forty to fifty thousand years ago, depending where where you look. Um, perhaps a little deeper in, in some instances, but in relation to rock art, um, and there's a, a really well studied European tradition around 40,000 years ago, uh, where our, our ancestors, um, as you say, crawled into these distant, deep, difficult crevices under the earth just to paint animals on the wall. And it's bewildering. Why, why on earth would you do this? Uh, and, and it seems uh, that the, the preoccupation with animals evidences some sort of deep-rooted emotional need. You'd only do this if you had a real need to express something, to to release something, uh, to encounter something. And scholars have been weighing up different interpretations for many years. Um, but it was David Lewis Williams, a South African uh, scholar, who, who observed that often alongside the animals, there are these geometric marks and forms recurring, almost like a miniature language, these, these 20 or so forms and figures, which uh, sort of swirls and, and dots, which are found uh, in caves, which were decorated many millennia apart. They're hundreds of years apart. They were painted by people who had no knowledge of each other. Mm. Yet it's the same forms, the same recurring images. And he he observed that actually these are the same forms and images that the Tucano paint on their houses, that they carve into their um, wooden structures. And this this led him on a, a line of inquiry, which um, which led him to conclude that that probably. Uh, they provide evidence that our, our ancestors in caves were were accessing altered states of consciousness, not through uh, psychotropic drugs, not through yahe, but through sensory deprivation. And that this might have formed some part of an sort of early early shamanic complex, cultural complex, wherein those who were seeking these altered states were doing so for mythic reasons in order to perhaps encounter these these mythic figures, the Vine Marse, the Master of Animals, or for some sort of process of cathartic release. You know, we, we know that um, psychedelics can be used for cathartic release. This is part of what the Tikana were doing in their Yahi ceremony. So the, there seems to be some sort of continuum between the, the deep-rooted concerns around meat in our society and various other societies and what was happening in these caves. So I, I, I explore the evidence that suggests this is the, the earliest expression of, of the meat paradox, our earliest response to it. I'm really interested that you think that we're fulfilling an emotional need by going into the caves when my first instinctual response was that this was a spiritual need and that those two are different. Are they not different for you? So I think, as we've alluded to with the Cree or the, the Yukagir, that there's this sense in which there's a, a spiritual narrative around humans and animals and the way the world works and the animal is a gift and 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 so on. And then there's the the emotional complexity of what happens when you actually thrust the spear into that that creature. And and probably what we're seeing 
or I say probably, we don't know, but, but it's plausible that what we're seeing in the caves is, is a combination of the two. There, there is a, a sense in which what's being expressed in these images is imagery that um, pertains to a sort of spiritual realm, that this idea that there are these, these greater beings, these guardian beings, the sense of rejuvenation of, of animals in a sort of mythic complex, but also a need to find release for this, these complex emotions which characterize um, uh, the, the meat paradox, the sense that there's a, a degree of atonement that's needed with the animal world for our, the violence that is intrinsic to our relationship with it. And in some caves you find uh, that the, the image maker has carried a, a tooth or a, or a bit of bone or something, and, and they've stuck it into the wall, almost as a sort of exchange, um, a, a token of exchange between worlds, this currency, this bringing animal blood and the paint, animal bodies back down into the earth um, to give back what was what was taken. Um, this is obviously somewhat speculative, but but it sort of coheres with um, the way that we behave today and think today. And these people, in the, those who made images in the caves, they're, they're modern humans, no different to, to anyone alive today. Yeah. That would take us on a whole different narrative. That's really interesting because I have a 30,000-year-old fossilised horse's tooth that occupies a particular place on my altar and is currently bound to a tree on the hill as a result of a shamanic journey that I did that led to the book that I'm writing. So for me, taking a bit of a tooth in is a gateway for me to connect with the spirit of the animal whose tooth it was, which isn't necessarily a reparation. It's more... You're my guide and I am. This is a doorway that you have opened for me. But but let's leave that one because we haven't got a huge amount of time. And I really want to bring us back to the present day and our current state of being. Because it seems to me one of the big disjoints that we have with either Indigenous peoples or our ancestors is that for them there was no moral ambiguity around eating plants. We know, or we believe with current thinking, that the Amazon is one great big farmed or at least slightly managed environment. But it was managed in a way that was completely holistic and that allowed for and supported the thriving of extraordinarily complex biosystems. Our current methods of farming are are wholly destructive. If any of the sciences to be believed, we're within two decades of the oceans being completely dead. And partly it's CO2, and but a lot of it is toxic runoff, and a lot of that is toxic runoff from agriculture, where we are exploding planetary boundaries of, of nitrates and phosphates and potassium particularly. Uh, and the other third of killing the oceans is microplastics, which is a separate thing. So we exist now, or I exist as a human being, with a moral dilemma of everything that I eat, actually everything that I do, simply existing as a human being, is destroying the world. We're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction. I can, I am part of the fact that the turtle dove, as you say in the book, is is now on the critically endangered list. And it's not because I eat turtle doves, which I have never done. It's because I exist in a system that is completely destroying the whole of the ecosystem. And and actually, it seems that Britain is is uniquely very bad. I, somebody, one of the authors that I follow, I can't remember, on Twitter posted, you, you only have to go to Normandy to realise that there is much more species available. You know, many more things are alive in Normandy than are alive in Britain. 
um, because we have been particularly good at the kind of militarization of our ag agricultural system. So we exist with a moral dilemma where meat is murder, as you say in the book, there is no question of that. And, and we've managed to convince ourselves that somehow white meat, that chicken and fish is, is better than red meat when anyone who's been anywhere near an industrial chicken plant or the killing of chickens, which is, is, is beyond horrible, knows that, that this is not true unless you have the absolute privilege of, you know, we live in a village in the middle of nowhere, the lady in the next village has half a dozen chickens that, that root around and, and I've been there and watched her pull their necks and I think, you know, if there is an animal contract that says we will look after you, keep the foxes off you, feed you nice stuff and, and five or six years down the line, I'm sorry we're going to eat you, then that's as good as that equivalence gets. And my alternative in my vegetarian days, I never went, well, I was vegan for about six months. It wasn't a good experience. But what do I do? How do I as a human being now in the Western culture exist in a system that is destroying the planet? And so I would like to take us beyond the meat paradox to the, the human paradox of, of living and explore what how you have overcome that paradox and then extend that to how could we as, as a culture address that paradox? Does that make sense as a question? Mm, absolutely, yeah. And, and a, a big, obviously important question. And, and I think the, the meat paradox sticks at the very centre of this. The, the way that we farm uh, our industrialised food system is um, a, a key driver of ecological breakdown. It's, it's at the very heart of what we do alongside... Um, our, our over-reliance on fossil fuels, our reliance on fossil fuels, uh, and and the industrialized food system is being driven by global demand for cheap meat. So the, our, our relationship with animals, which is broken uh, on a really fundamental level, is is a key driver of all of this. As I could tell in the tone of your voice, and as you alluded to, it's it's scary, and there's there's a huge amount at stake. But but there is also um, in the context of farming and land use and the way that we eat, um, there's enormous agency w within our hands. Um, we the the type of system change that we need to see can be brought about. There are you know all sorts of forces stacked up against us in the sort of uh, food industry and, and government and so on. But 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 fundamentally, we're already seeing the type of shift we need. Uh, on the land, it needs to be scaled up massively this decade. We need a uh, this this move. I'm 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 referring to away from extractive agriculture towards more regenerative approaches, more agroecological farming, which remains uh, somewhat um, on on the sidelines, but is becoming increasingly mainstream and and has the the capacity, if if enacted properly and quickly, to put into reverse some of these trends around biodiversity loss and soil degradation. There's a really important shift that's needed to make that happen around the way that we eat. As I describe in the book, we need to come to the conclusion that both farmers and vegans are part of the solution and all those who sit in between, the, the polarity of the debate isn't helpful. Those who point out that industrial animal agriculture is, is driving this crisis and who choose to opt out from consuming animals are very much part of the solution. Those who are on the land trying to employ regenerative and agroecological approaches that integrate livestock into these complex agroecosystems, they're part of the solution. There's no easy answer to, to the ethical question around meat and, and, and animal death, but there are obviously much better ways um, that we can be handling that question than we are now. So I, I feel not optimistic, but like there's a huge amount that we can do this decade to make things less terrible. <laughs> 
So that's in the UK where a lot of our, you know, I live in Shropshire, most of the land is 45 degrees. You, you can't get a tractor on it without killing yourself. And, and the, a lot of it is sheep wrecked and I would like it not to be. But worldwide, I, if I, I'm understanding you and, and reading wider, particularly the politics of protein more accurately, we would have to basically stop intensive farming. We, we have to on a humane level and we have to on a planetary level. And so in terms of diet, it doesn't seem to me that you're advocating everybody to become vegan. And if you were, I would be interested to know how we how we get there without intensive monoculture farming, which seems to me not as disastrous as intensive livestock farming, but still pretty disastrous. Where would you set yourself on a, a UK level and then on a global level in terms of how do we feed ourselves and not keep pushing the sixth mass extinction over the edge? Yeah, I think the um, the Sustainable Food Trust is the the, the report they've just published is, is one of several recent reports which have arrived at broadly the, the same conclusion. If you take it as read that we need to phase out fossil fuel-based inputs because they clearly have no future, while bringing biodiversity back onto the farm, building resilience into our soils and so on, um, then, then it requires a significant dietary shift. Um, and intensive animal farming is really fossil fuel based. The only way we can farm so many pigs and chickens is through these, these cheap commodity crops, which are grown using fossil fuel based fertilizers. So once you um, start to look at a more regenerative approach, one that combines more complex crop rotations and integrates crops and livestock and so on, that necessitates quite a sizable dietary shift. Um, and I think there's broad agreement that pigs and chickens are, are, are the ones whose population we need to cut the most. But there remains an important role for, for grazing animals in, in, those, um, in those rotations and, and on some biodiverse pasture. Now, there's a legitimate debate in the UK around um, whether we should be giving more of that land, more of that pasture land, grassland, especially in the uplands, to sort of ecological regeneration, rewilding and so on. And I'm very sympathetic to that. And I think you can square the circle. You can have this regenerative agroecological farming alongside rewilding. It doesn't have to be a, a polarised debate. So we're, we're looking at a, a farming system which which integrates animals within it, um, ruminant animals in, in, in a lower sort of population. And, and there are good nutritional reasons to for, for at least some of us to consume those animals. There are certain segments of the population where a fully vegan diet can be more challenging, um, pregnant women and young children and so on. So there, there's clearly a sort of nutritional case for uh, for consuming some of those animals. Um, I think you could quite easily conceive that a, a large portion of the, the population would go plant-based, um, in um, fully plant-based in, in such a scenario. We'd be producing way more peas and beans and so on. It doesn't have to be, mm. veganism doesn't have to equal industrial monocrops and and, and and so on. It can be provided for by an agroecological farming system, but that would be a farming system that that includes animals integrated within it. And then we're down to the, the, the big questions around how should those animals live? What sort of lives should we make sure they have? Um, is, it, is it really right that we that we kill them and eat them? You know, these are these are questions we should continue to ask. We shouldn't um, take their ecological significance as a sort of uh, get out of jail free card for that that ethical debate. But but I think that um, there's an important role for both vegans and those who are consuming less and better meat in, in this more sustainable future. And I'm guessing, I'm just thinking of the land around here. Our, our freezer is currently 
packed with the Dexter steer that used to graze on our land. Um, but we have one of the very few, very small abattoirs in the next village where, where literally you walk your cow off or your steer off the trailer, walk it in. I, there isn't even a cage. The, the guys give you a white coat, you hold the halter, you give them a bowl of oats and somebody walks up with a gun and it's still horrible. But given that death happens... It seems to me, I, I don't know, as a vet, I used, I've probably killed more animals than anyone except a slaughterman. But I've always done it in the absolute belief that I was doing the right thing at the right time for that particular animal. Because we, with animals, have the capacity to say, your suffering is too great. We have no capacity to alleviate it and death is the best option. But with farm animals, we're not saying your suffering is great. We're saying tomorrow you don't get to see another sunrise because I want to eat you. And that's a very different philosophical and moral premise. And so as a very last thing, you posit that part of the agrarian revolution, where we shifted from being forager hunters, where the shaman might identify that seal as the one that you go and find and you go and kill it and you bring it back and everybody eats it in sacred ceremony, to the point where we develop a contract with the animals that says we'll keep the currently foxes because we've killed all the bigger predators in the UK, but we'll keep the predators off you, we'll feed you nice things, we'll trim your feet and keep you safe and you won't starve in the winters and as a result your part of the contract is that we get to eat you. Have you ever come across anyone that you think was adhering to that contract in the UK or, or anywhere? in domestic animals? I think the the contract, these, these sort of cultural narratives and, and the, this idea of a, a contract has been voiced by various folks who have looked at our relationship with animals. You know, Michael Pollan famously described it as a contract and so on. The, but it's it doesn't it's not plucked out of anywhere. It's not just plucked out of the ether. This is a good pragmatic description of what um, farmers and, and land managers are, are doing day to day when they um, when they do care for their the animals in their keep and, and when at an appointed time they, they then take the animal's life. Um, so I think the, the the question is what would it mean for us to genuinely uphold our end of the bargain, to really prioritise the animal's well-being and perhaps we would still consume their body at the end of their life, but what would it mean for us to really put their, their well-being first? And, and the obvious um, place where that breaks down i think even in higher welfare systems is around the length of the animal's life so pigs in a higher welfare farming system even organic might just live for, for six months where we're killing them as as infants adolescents you know this is a big complicated area to, to unpick you know what, what's the moral significance of the length of an animal's life but i think one one way in which we can better uh arguably we can better upkeep our end of the bargain, demonstrate our commitment to the contract, is to give animals a full life, is to value them for their individual worth and ecological function, uh, and, and treat their meat as a, a byproduct, which we is, is nutritionally important and which we might still consume, but isn't the the primary purpose of their existence. You, the, I'm talking about the sort of decommodification of animal life, a shift in our perception of um, of the role of animals within within our our food system. You know, they they should be seen as 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 valued members of a biotic community on an within an agroecosystem on a landscape. They're there for a, primarily their ecological function. And once they've had a long life, a good life, we might eat them. Um, but we won't 
take their life as a sort of adolescent unless there's some very good reason for that i know anyone who's listening to this who raises animals they, th this is obviously a sort of simplistic suggestion in, in to some degree um it's really complicated lots to unpick but i think it's a a, a sort of a headline ambition that we should be um thinking about when, when we think about these really big questions about the future of, of our relationship with animals yes Yes, and that I guess that we're heading towards a whole other podcast because we are running out of time because the economics of that would have to change significantly. Mm. We the 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 steer that is currently in our freezer is there because the abattoir would not kill over four years. They didn't. There's something to do with BSE that I don't fully understand because it's a long time since I did my meat inspection degree, um, and BSE didn't exist when I was doing it. But um, that you can't let them go over four without everything becoming a lot more complex. And I think there were rules about selling the meat. I'm not sure. So it seems to me that that would require a big systemic change. Everything everything on this podcast ever gets to is we need total systemic change. So we still need total systemic change. So as a final question, so you're head of food policy for the Soil Association and therefore you're in amongst policy being made at a governmental level. And I realise our current government is, is in the process of changing. We're about to get a new prime minister. Things are different. But are you noticing at the levels of governmental change where systemic change might be nudged into being that anyone is taking notice of this? Or are they still wedded to us asking the wrong questions so that the answers don't bother them and the fossil fuel industry can continue business as usual? Uh, I, I feel I, I work with some really talented civil servants within government who who understand what's at stake um, and who uh, are committed to genuine solutions. Um, I can't say the same for our current crop of politicians. I don't think on the whole they get it. I don't think they're inclined towards the right solutions. It's a very difficult political environment um, at the moment. There are, you know, there are, there are good individuals on, on both sides of the, or within all parties, but, um, but we don't currently have the, the right uh, leadership in place and and but what what um does give me reassurance is the degree to which public opinion polls consistently show climate environment uh, uh, are among the top national priorities uh, you know uh, brexit nhs environment um you know we have an energy crisis cost of living crisis at the moment and that public commitment to political action in this space remains uh, undimmed so at some point they're going to have to respond because they're going to have to. Re they're going to realise that it's within their own self-serving political interests to to pay attention. So the the people are increasingly in the right place, even if our political leaders are uh, are woefully falling short. Beautiful. Okay, we're going to have to stop there and and recommend to everybody that they read your book. And one of the things I wanted to explore, and we didn't have time, was the extent to which the concepts that we've been exploring were weaponized in the Brexit referendum and people were getting targeted images on their social media feeds promising that you know cute little animals weren't going to be killed anymore if we left the EU effectively and and I had I'd know that they stooped very very low but I'd had no idea they stooped that low I don't know why I didn't think of it but it's astonishing the levels to which everything is being twisted to achieve the political goals that those who have the power to twist, want. So I sincerely hope that you're right, that they see the light and don't just decide to point us in other directions so that we're asking different questions and getting answers that keep them safe. 
And in the meantime, for everybody listening, the meat paradox continues to be a paradox and it is, I think, beholden to each of us individually to investigate how we live and and what we eat generally and how we can how we can contribute to the solution and not keep contributing to the problem. And you've offered us some really, really clear, succinct and obvious routes. And thank you. Thank you for writing the book, which is fantastic. And thank you for coming on to the podcast. It's been a delight. Thank you very much for having me. And that's it for another week. Enormous thanks to Rob for the scholarship of his book, for its beauty, for its deep spirituality, and for his courage in exploring this deepest of questions. The conversation didn't go entirely as I'd planned. The very last line of the book, or at least the last line of the prose and the acknowledgements, is, and to Odin, maestro and mentor, bearded traveller, and example to us all. And I read that and was really quite excited and had planned the entire conversation to be one of real in-depth exploration of spirituality, partly because the book really goes there in the exploration of current indigenous beliefs around this moral question and also the diving deep into our ancestral past with the cave paintings in France. And then we had the pre-podcast conversation, Rob and I, and I said, was it all right to go there? You know, just because you put it in the last line of the acknowledgements doesn't mean you necessarily want to talk about it, but are you happy to talk about it in the in the podcast? And he looked a bit shy, and it turns out that Odin is actually his dog. And even though he has a tattoo on the edge of his hand, which I was able to see because we have a video link, and the tattoo is of an eye that looks remarkably to me like an Odin sigil, he still isn't a priest of Asgard, apparently. So we didn't have that conversation. But I just wanted to let you know that it was there because it makes people read the acknowledgements at the end of a book, if nothing else. And this is a book well worth reading, genuinely. It's 360 pages long, but that acknowledgements page is page 246 and the last 114 pages of the references. It's very academic, but it's also very beautiful and very poetic and takes us deep into places we really didn't have time to go to in the podcast, leaving aside that we didn't have the spiritual insights that I'd hoped for. We also didn't get to something that increasingly for me, and therefore for this podcast, is important. And it has been for a long time. Way back in 2016, when I was doing the Masters, my first term paper's question was, what does a shamanic economic model look like? And I was two days off having to hand in, still doing the shamanic processing, when the god that I work with, one of them, stood in front of me on a walk and said, you're asking the wrong question. And the question is, what is humanity for? And only when you've got that, can you arrange an economic system around it? And in order to answer that question, I have daily to ask the question, what am I here for? And as we touched on towards the end of the conversation with Rob, 
I think that our moral dilemma, our paradox, extends now beyond our killing of mammalian species or even birds and fish and mammalian species. Things that we would give sentience to. Because we know that plants are sentient. And yes, I know that I can pick an apple or a wild raspberry or a bramble off a hedge and not kill the entire plant. But I can take eggs from the chickens and not kill the chickens. And do, on a daily basis. And yet, for almost all of us, the things that we eat are integral to the destruction of the biosphere. If the GOES report is right at all, then the killing of the oceans is as much the industrial runoff from agriculture as it is the carbon emissions and the microplastics. And even our ability to assess carbon emissions is badly skewed. There's a whole area of conversation around do we look at GWP star or do we use other measures of greenhouse gas emissions? And I'm reading papers yet really to solidify around why does nature create methane and what is the role of erectated methane in normal soil creation. And all of these move out into the concept that there is so much of a wider system and simply interfering in one place, going vegan or not going vegan, is not enough to make systemic change. Unless we can change the whole of the way that we live, and our diets are an integral part of that, to become part of a living system and not using living animals in the way we also use plants as things to be chemicalised and as part of our complete destruction of the living soil and the living oceans. Until we can do that, then everything that we eat is part of the problem. It's just how we choose to assess its impact on part of the problem that matters. So, for me, the question of what I am here for becomes central to how do I live? And I would like to pass that on down the line. So, that is my message from this week and from today. What are you here for? Are you living the best life that you can And are you living in a way that brings you as close as you can towards integration? Because one of the key messages of Rob's books and lots of the books that we read is that we are really, really good at lying to ourselves and each other about our motivations and our actions. And somehow, somewhere along the line, we have to stop that. And I want to leave you with a quote from the London Review of Books. It comes from an astonishing essay called A Million Shades of Red by Adam Mars Jones, and I will put a link to this in the show notes too. It's largely about homosexuality, and it's a review of a number of books. The actual quote, I think, has applications beyond the essay, and it says, Intellectual power has its uses, but it doesn't enable its possessor to operate independently of emotional damage, though it may convince him, or I would say her, or them, that they are doing just that. And predatory capitalism is falling to bits around our ears. 
which is going to be a traumatic process. And all of us who grew up within that, which is to say anybody who was around since the Romans, as far as I'm concerned, has been deeply traumatised, has huge emotional damage as a result of the environment that we inhabit. And our intellectual power is part of what gets us out of this. But so is understanding the emotional damage and seeking to find ways not to pass it on. So that too is the message of this week. I'm going to hit quite a big number zero birthday next week, so I'm thinking quite a lot about these things. It's a good time to review what I'm doing. Anyway, that's it for this week, definitely. Thanks, as ever, to Caro C for astonishing sound production and for the magical music at the head and foot. To Faith Tilleray for the beauty of the websites and the conversations that keep us moving forward. To Anne Thomas for the transcripts. And, as always, to you for listening. And if you know of anybody else who really wants to engage with the deepest questions of life, please do pass them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye.